Amen and praise the Lord and a very good morning to all of you. I trust that uh, you've had a good weekend. Uh, we are glad and we are hopeful uh, for the week that we are about to embark upon. Amen. Let's start off with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the, your spirits that will lead and guide us into all truth. Thank you for all trance to articulate your word by the inspiration and by the power of your spirits. Thank you for your word that will have a fertile landing on the soils of your people's hearts. Thank you that we will run with this word. We will not be forgetful hearers. We will be active doers, O oh Lord, because of the revelation we will receive this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please go with me to John chapter 19, verse 17 to 24. I'm even lost. What part are we on now? Is it 86 or 87? You know, it's a long one, isn't it? All right, John chapter 19, don't worry. John chapter 19, verse 17 to 24. John chapter 19, verse 17 to 24. I read, And he bearing his cross went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him. Another name is Calvary and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore, the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Amen. Based on our reading, our ministering under the sub team, the victory of crucifixion. So this story now explains to us the crucifixion. Now, let me, it's, it's always um, worth repeating. Whenever you are reading the Gospels, the Gospels is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you come to an event in any of the four books, try and find out whether it's there is um, a repetition 
in the other three books. All right. And then when you find that, always read all the accounts so that you will be able to get a fuller picture and a broader meaning of that particular event. Because this is John's narration. Matthew also has his narration in Matthew chapter 27. Mark has his narration in Mark 15. And Luke has his narration in Luke 23. So this is replete in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When we are talking about the Gospels, we are talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if you read Matthew's accounts, read Mark, Luke, and John. If you read Mark's accounts, read the other three accounts. If you read any of the accounts, try and get all the accounts so that you'll be able to understand the entirety of the events. Amen. Because everybody picks what they want to emphasize on and perhaps what ministered to them. And when you are writing to, you also write based on your biases. So all that comes into play. So um, that is very important. But when you look at John's narration, he's really talking to us about Jesus about to face the final sentence of crucifixion. And the Bible lets us know he, he bore his cross. If you read other accounts, the Bible lets us know that there was someone that helped him, especially if you read Luke's account, Luke chapter 23. It talks about a black man, Simon of Cyrene, as a black man. He helped him. He helped Jesus, took the cross, and took it because Jesus was too weak. It was just at the point of death. But I believe that whilst they were approaching probably the foot of Gogotha, which was a mountainous ridge, in my mind's eye, I believe maybe the soldiers were like, give it to the man and let him take it to the cross himself. So Jesus, with, with blood come, you know, I don't think at that point he even had blood anymore. I mean, we, we we had a very fascinating Bible study this morning, and I think our teacher touched on that. I don't think at that point there was blood anymore. He was just pale, you know, just going. I think he had just very little blood left. And with that strength, he mustered and went to his place of crucifixion. And it was very important he died on the cross. Thanks be to God that he didn't die on the way. He didn't die on the way pimples. There's the significance of why he had to die on the cross. That's why I call this message the victory of crucifixion. Gory it might seem, graphic it might seem, brutal it might seem, but behind all these um, unsettling images of, of crisis, death, at the hands of crucifixion, there is some victory or some triumph that we can glean from. First and foremost, when you were about to be crucified, you were disgraced. You had no dignity left. They strip you naked. Is if you ever watch some of these Jesus movies, there are quite a lot of adaptations. Most times when Jesus is crucified, you see him wearing pants. I think they just have to do that for viewer discretion. But 
in reality, Jesus was not wearing pants or in a, he, he was just naked. That's how they crucified you. Just to humiliate you, just to disgrace you. In our Bible study today, we talked about how Jesus emptied himself. He knew the task at hand. He knew he was going to be disgraced. But he came. All because of love. So Jesus was stripped naked. And then they used spikes, not nails. There's a difference between a spike and a nail. A spike is quite big. And they will not nail your palms. You know, if you watch the movies, you see that they nail this one. I think the passion got it right because the passion, uh, they nailed his wrist. That is where they actually nail. Because their wrist has very soft tendons. It is litious. These Romans were very wicked with how they practiced crucifixion. With the Jewish, they would just hang you on a tree and allow you to die by asphyxiation. With the Romans, they added a cruel twist to it. They would rather put spikes in, in your wrists. All right? And then spikes on your ankles. And then you are held by three spikes on a wooden tree, which is a cross. And then you are lifted up from the ground and you are just there for people to just witness till you die. It was a very common death sentence. But this death sentence was normally reserved for the harshest of criminals. People we deem a danger to society. People who we believe if we should live among, we, we leave them among, they will disturb the peace of society. Just recently, I think about two days ago, I was just reading the news and I, I read the news of a country that have just convicted six people who, plot, who were about to plot a coup. Thank God the coup failed. <laughs> and what happened is that they've been sentenced to hanging. And I'm like, wow, mercy. I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I, I hope you know, that third death sentence, that, that harsh sort of penalty has been done away with. But I just read that six people are going to be hanged. I don't know when they are going to be hanged, but... Um, that that is that is brutal. So it, it, it's 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 equivalent to that. And even the arrangements. You know, Jesus was going to be killed in the presence of thieves. His company were going to be thieves, and they were arranging in such a way that the worst culprit is in the middle. So I don't know what sort of criminal offense these other two guys did. But placing Jesus in the middle meant he is the worst, the chiefest of all sinners. Yeah, the Bible says that he never sinned. He had no sin. Jesus died a very humiliating death, a very embarrassing death, and a very shameful death. He was placed in between two thieves and he died. This makes me remember a joke about a man who, who was on his deathbed, his hospital deathbed. I mean, he was quite rich. So he sensed that his time is coming. 
And when he sensed this time was coming, he told his wife, please, can you do me a favor? I want you to go and call my lawyer and my accountant. You know, the wife too will also make haste because the wife is like, lawyer, wow, will, you know. Um, we are about to know the will, and I will know my inheritance. So the wife hastily went to call for the lawyer. Accountants, he has lots of money. So maybe the wife was like, wow, maybe he wants to put things in place, you know, and make sure that we know about the hedge funds and the investments and all that. So they came. And when they came with the little strength he had, he told, he gave them instruction. Let the accountants be on my right. Let the lawyer be on my left. And then they, they, they situated themselves per the man's command. He said, just as Jesus died between two thieves, I'm also about to die. <laughs> he, just, he just died. <laughs> he, just, he, just wanted, he just wanted to die just like Jesus. But nevertheless, Jesus was placed in between two thieves. And he died. And him being the middle meant he was the chiefest of all sinners. Now, when you read verse 19, the Bible lets us know that um, Pilate instructed the right, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of Jews. And the Bible lets us know that it was written in three languages. It was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And during the time of Jesus' days, there was racial tensions between Jews and non-Jews. But for the first time in history, we see racial harmony at the foot of the cross. So it wasn't just Jews who were present. Mind, it was also a Passover. So normally, all other nations outside Israel will come and celebrate. But for the first time in history, you see Jews and non-Jews gather at the foot of the cross without any racial discrimination, any racial tension. Jesus' death, his, his crucifixion took away that schism and that racial barrier that existed between Jews and non-Jews. That's why when we call ourselves believers, one of the things we should least participate in is racism. Because if you are a Christian, you call yourself a Christian and you still want to place criteria on human beings based on race, I tell you, you've not yet understood the weight of the death of Christ. And the title, like we said last week, it wasn't to acknowledge his sovereignty or his kinship. It was to denigrate Christ and to mock at him. And whilst this title was written, the chief priests, the Bible lets us know that they went to Pilate and they said, look, do not write the king of the Jews because this man is not our king. Write that he said, I am the king of Jews. <laughs> they wanted an inverted commas. You know, I think Pilate saw that you, these guys, you are too much. He said, look, what I have written, I have written. You can't change my mind. I think even Pilate knew that, look, these guys, they are a bit much. They are a bit much. 
But the Bible lets us know that whilst Jesus was hanging on the cross, supported by only spikes, such a painful and a grim situation, the Bible lets us know that they took his garments and rendered it into four parts. Each soldier had a part and also the tunic. And the Bible lets us know that the tunic was without sin. Jesus was a very ordinary man. He, he, he was very plain. He was not a rich man. His, his, this, his garment was not designer garments. He said it was a tunic without seam. It did not even have seam. And it's, it's, it's woven from the top in one piece. It's a very ordinary plain dress. No wonder in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Apostle Paul by revelation said that Jesus became poor for our sake, that we might become rich. Jesus lived a very simple, ordinary life. He was poor. And the reason why he was poor was for our sake, so that through his poverty, we could experience riches. Now, when I talk about riches, not talking about spiritual riches. It's talking about material riches. Amen. But Jesus' garments were used to cast lots. And when it was used to cast lots, scripture was fulfilled. If you read Psalm 22, verse 18, David prophesied that they divided my garments among them and my clothing they cast as lots. That scripture was fulfilled right there when they, they used Jesus' clothing to cast lots. But it's deeper than that. Go with me to Leviticus chapter 16, verse 8 to 10. They had a prophecy which was fulfilled at the foot of the cross when they used Jesus' cloth to cast lots. It's disrespectful. But it's deeper than that. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 8 to 10. Now, if you read the first seven verses of Leviticus, it, it talks about the rules of engagement when it comes to performing sacrifice, especially on the Day of Atonement. Israel had a yearly event called the Day of Atonement. It's a day when everybody comes, the high priest intercedes on your behalf for your sins, that you will not incur the wrath of God. It was a yearly event, very important. You don't miss that moment to come every year that all your sins that you have committed will be forgiven so that you don't reap the outcome, you don't reap the benefits of your sin, you don't suffer the consequences. And some way, somehow, we believe in a God that pardons and who is merciful, who extends mercy. So that was what happened. But if you read Leviticus chapter 16 from verse 8, the Bible lets us know that then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goods. Where do lots come from? It comes from pieces of cloth. 
All right, so same thing. So what happened is that there is one um, goat for a sin offering. The sin offering is what you will give to the priest, and the priest will sacrifice that to atone for your sin. And then there is another goat. What is the goat for? So Aaron has to cast lots for the two goats, one for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoats. So Aaron has two goats. Both are without blemish. Both are without spots. They fulfill the criteria. But in order for one to become sin offering and one to become a scapegoat, you don't just pick. You have to cast lots. Now, verse 9. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as sin offering. So he has lots. One lot, he will say, okay, this I will call the Lord's lot. This I will call just the lot. And then he will just cast it. It's just like casting a die or a dice. And when he casts it, or it's just like using a coin, heads and tails. The head is for car number one. The tail is for car number two. How do I determine that? Let's toss a coin. Something like that. So now they are casting lots. So cast lots. One is, side is the lot's lot. The another is just a lot. So Aaron has to cast the lot. And when he casts the lot, the Bible lets us know that the one that is called the lost lot, who it falls upon among the two goods, the lost lot is for the sin offering. And then the lot that fell on the other goods, that is for the scapegoats. Now, what is the importance or the significance of a scapegoats? Look at it. But the goods on which the lot fell to be the scapegoats shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and let it go as the scapegoats into the wilderness. Was, this is where we get the word scapegoats. This is where the word English came from. It's not really an English, it's a Bible word. It's a, it's, it's a word that is used on the day of atonement. There are two goats. One, one goat, the goat that is called the scapegoat is the one that you say all your sins upon that goat. And then you release the goat into the wilderness. When you release the goat into the wilderness, the Jewish believe that the goat has taken all the iniquities, the sins, and everything that you have committed away from the presence of the Lord. So in order to say thank you to the Lord, we now sacrifice the goats that the Lord, Lord fell upon as sin offering. Do we all understand? Now, when the Bible tells us that Jesus' clothes was cast as lots, this is speaking to us about Jesus' redemptive ministry. So you see, when you read this scripture in Leviticus chapter 16, you are not just reading about goats, you are not just reading about offering, but you are reading a prophetic picture of Christ who will become our Redeemer. Christ is our sin offering, but he's also our scapegoat. We couldn't handle the sin. 
So he took all the sins of the world upon himself and he died in a spiritual wilderness. That is why Jesus exclaimed when we read in the subsequent verses, Lord, Lord, why have you forsaken me? It's reminiscent of the goats in the wilderness carrying the sins of the world. And Jesus had to do that. Lots were casted. It wasn't just a fulfillment of a Davidic psalm or David's prophecy, but also a pointed to Jesus being the scapegoat. When Moses and Aaron, when they practiced the scapegoat concept, they were practicing what Jesus was going to do thousands of years later, where he will become the final sacrifice for the sins of the world. Jesus doesn't do yearly sacrifices. It's once and for all. He is the final sacrifice. He became the sin of the world. All of our sins were laid upon him. And not just that, he also became the sin offering by dying in our place so that you and I will not experience the penalty of sin. That is the victory of crucifixion. So we thank God that despite how gory, how graphic the scene of Christ's death was, it was for our victory. Now, what significance does Christ's death hold for today's Christian? I want to look at two scriptures and then we'll pray. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 to 14. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did Christ redeem us from the curse of the Lord? Of the law, I'm sorry. Having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. Do you see why Jesus could not die on a whipping post or could not die on the way, but he had to die on the cross? Because when you die on the cross, you are cursed. And Jesus had to die on the cross so that we could be redeemed from the curse of the law. So whilst Jesus died on the cross, a shameful death. And for the Jew, when you die on the cross, you are seen cursed. But Jesus being cursed was for our benefits. He became a curse for us. That's why you should not believe in curses. Jesus became a curse for you so that you can live a life of perpetual blessing. Jesus has set into motion blessings in perpetuity. We are not cursed because our Savior died on the cross to become a curse for us. 
This is the victory of crucifixion. You are not cursed. I believe in the existence of generational curses, but it doesn't apply to me. I am not cursed. Because Jesus became a curse for me. And not just that, I have also been delivered from the curse of the law. The curse of the law, which is from Deuteronomy 12, chapter 28, verse 15 to 68, doesn't apply to me when I break the Lord's commandments. When I break the Lord's commandments, I rather experience pardon, I experience forgiveness, I experience remission of sins, not the curse of the law. Christ has redeemed me from the curse of the law and he became a curse for me so that I can be blessed. Not just that, that the blessing of Abraham will come upon us Gentiles, not on the Jews, because the Jews walk in the blessing of Abraham, but we who are Gentiles will also partake of the blessing of Abraham. And what is the blessing of Abraham? The blessing of Abraham is justification. Many people think the blessing of Abraham is riches. Not really. Before Abraham left his father's place, he was already a rich man. It's not riches. Abraham was an, was, was an idol worshiper, specifically an astrologer. He was already rich. It's not riches. It's justification. Genesis 15 verses, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That justification, that made them be called the righteousness of God. When we come into Christ because of his death on the cross, which is victorious, we have become justified as a result of the gift of righteousness being imputed upon us. The third thing that you see there is that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. We receive the Spirit. We receive the Holy Spirit. It's not even the promise of the Spirit because it's been fulfilled. We are walking in the reality and in the era and in the dispensation of the Holy Spirit. So Christ's death has canceled curses on our behalf because he became a curse for us. Christ's death has afforded us the gift of righteousness that makes us live justified. That's what is called the blessing of Abraham. Christ's death has made it possible for us to walk in the dispensation of the Holy Spirit. We receive the Holy Spirit. And because we receive the Holy Spirit, we we put ourselves in a prime posture to give birth to the fruit of the Spirit and also receive the gifts of the Spirit. We, we have the, the Spirit here all because of the victory of crucifixion. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 to 16. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 to 16. I want us to look at 
a second witness in the scripture, which underscores the victory of crucifixion. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, is called the law, the handwriting of requirements. It required that we please God. We couldn't do it. It required that we put our best foot forward. We couldn't. It required that we become holy. We couldn't. It required that we become righteous. We couldn't. We couldn't. That's why Christ came. So because of Christ, we are righteous. Because of Christ, we are holy. Because of Christ, we are good people. Because of Christ, our works are accepted as good works. But this handwriting of requirements taxed upon us to perform all these things, and we couldn't. So it was against us. And because it was against us, it was contrary to us. But Jesus has taken this handwriting of requirements, which is called the law, out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So when Christ was being nailed to the cross, he stood in the place of the handwriting of requirements and fulfilled every requirement so that you and I, when we come into Christ, instead of us working to be righteous, we receive the gift of righteousness. Instead of working to be holy, we receive the gift of holiness. Instead of working to set ourselves apart in Christ, we receive the gift of sanctification. And then from there, it is now possible to now live based on belief. We don't work for it. So Jesus came to take away the place of the law so that the handwriting of requirements which was against us is now Christ for us. The handwriting of requirements which was against us has been nailed to the cross, which means that Christ is for us. Christ is our ally. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Not just that, but he disarmed principalities and powers, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing in them. I like that. So when Jesus was on the cross in pain, It was the defeat of the enemy. It was making a public spectacle, a show of the enemy's defeat. During the Colossian time, they understood this because when there is a feared enemy and they wanted to show he's been captured, they strip him naked and they tie him to the chariots and then they ride them around the whole city. That's a spectacle. So he might be a feared king, but it will be a public show. The whole city will come and they will see that that we fear has been tied naked to a chariot 
and he's been ridden around the whole city for everybody to see. A public spectacle. And then they cut off his big thumb, his thumbs on both hands. That means you can't hold a sword again. They cut off the big toes of both feet. That means you can't stand on your ground and fight or for that matter, defend yourself. So they do all these things and then they ride you around the city, parading you naked for everybody to see that that which we are afraid is a defeated foe. So when Apostle Paul was talking about the devil has been made a public spectacle, this was how the Colossians pictured it. Like a feared foe who is being paraded on chariots naked. Let me tell you, the devil that you are afraid of is being paraded naked. And it was on the crucifixion. That is why I call this the victory of crucifixion. Now, the third thing that we see here is that because Christ has nailed the handwriting of requirements, he's wiped the law, so that now we don't need to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law to be righteous, fulfill the righteous requirements of the law to be holy. We just have to believe in Christ, we are holy. Believe in Christ, you are righteous. Believe in Christ, you are sanctified. And, and the second thing that we know is that the devil has been defeated and demons have all been made a public spectacle of. So, so maybe the reason why you are afraid of the devil and demons is probably you missed the parade. So I, I just came to read the Bible to inform you a parade has already taken place showing the demotion, showing the humiliation of the enemy, showing the humiliation of all demons that you are afraid of. So don't be afraid of the devil. The enemy that fights against your soul is a defeated foe. And for, for your information, he has been paraded. But I like this third thing. So... Let no one judge you in food or drink regarding a festival, new moon, Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. That the third thing that the crucifixion afforded us is to live in the liberty of the new covenant. And because of that, nobody judges us in food and in drink. This one is talking about drink. It's not talking about alcoholic drink. You know, those days, they, they, they had drinks that they dedicated to gods. And when you take those drinks, you become unclean. A typical example is Daniel. You see, when, when Daniel went to Nebuchadnezzar's house in Daniel chapter 1, he, he said that I will not eat any food to defile myself. Why? Because the foods were dedicated to Nebuchadnezzar's God. So if he eats it, he's unclean. But thanks be to God that now we walk in the liberty of the new covenant. That doesn't apply. That's why you and I can't go to a Chinese restaurant. If you go to a Chinese restaurant, look on top, on your right corner, you will see a God sitting there, a big one. It's overweight too. It's always bronze. 
Under the Old Testament, you and I can eat there. We are defiled, but thanks be to God that we live in the liberty of the new covenant that even when we eat these foods, it doesn't make us unclean because we are free. We are walking in the liberty of the new covenant. It talks about regarding a festival. That's why, personally, I don't believe in celebrating all these Old Testament festivals like Passover. Some Christians do that. And I don't condemn that. It all depends on the revelation you have in Christ. I won't, I won't even condemn you. It talks about a new moon. I find it funny that in most of our churches, we are practicing new moons. New moons means that every month you are associated with something. Oh, it's the month of February. So we are going to give this offering, you know, to, to secure our blessing for February. Even sometimes our watch night services, 31st, our New Year's, it becomes a new moon. We've made it into a new moon. We've added superstitions based on months. Paul says that don't judge us and that. That's why if a church decides that we will not do New Year's Eve service, they are not cursed. Don't judge them by new moon. Oh, it's, it's, it's August 8th, the month of new beginnings. Come and sow a seed of $88 for your, 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 your season of new beginnings is, is nine. Nine is uh, 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 you will deliver. And, and, and for you to experience delivery, I want you to give an offering of $99 to give birth in, in, the, in the ninth month. So the, the Bible says that from where Zion traveled, she brought its new moon. It's new moon. That's what new moon is about. Superstitions. The Bible says that we are free, free people. We can walk in the liberty of the new covenant. That's why one of my favorite scriptures is in Galatians 5.1, that we should walk in the liberty that Christ has set us free, and we should not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. The yoke of bondage is talking about the law. For your information, in context, what about the law? When you are under the law, you are under a yoke of bondage. You will practice new moons and all these sorts of things which will restrict your understanding of Christianity. Take the veil off, the veil that was on Moses. Take it off so that you can be free and, and know Christ in, in the newness of the Spirit by revelation. Oh, we thank you, O oh Lord, that crucifixion has really brought to us victory. Victory points of crucifixion. Victory points for the Christian. Thank you, O oh Lord, that you died a shameful death, that the curse upon my life will be broken. You died a shameful death, that you exchanged my curse for a blessing. You died a shameful death, that I will receive the blessing of Abraham. You died a shameful death, that I will, I will be in this era and in the dispensation of the Spirit. You died a shameful death, that the law has been wiped away. Uh, you fulfill the, the righteous requirements of the Lord that in you I live, in you I move, in you I have my being. You die the shameful death that the devil and all his cohorts will be defeated. Oh, thank you, Lord, that I will walk continually in victory. You die the shameful death, a very painful one, that I will walk in the liberty and in the freedom of the new covenants. For this, we just want to say thank you. Thanks, Lord. Thanks. 
we give you thanks for all you've done. I am so blessed. My soul has found rest. Oh Lord, I give you thanks. We give you thanks, oh Lord, today for victory in your crucifixion. Thank you, oh Lord. Thank you, oh Lord. May this word sink deep into our hearts that we will really enjoy the liberty of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.